0: This podcast is presented by Solving Kids Cancer, dedicated to improving survival through novel clinical studies. To learn more about funding opportunities, visit our website at solvingkidscancer.org and click Apply for Grant. This week in Pediatric Oncology, the podcast about new advances for childhood cancer Hi hey everybody, and welcome to episode number fifty—that's five zero—recorded on March twenty fifth, two thousand fifteen. I'm your host Tim Kripe, from Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio, affiliated with the Ohio State University, and I'm here without any co-hosts today, but with a special guest, Dr. Jonathan Finley. Welcome, Jonathan. Thank
1: you for having me.
0: Today we will talk with Jonathan about his illustrious career and about his interests and and some of his current ongoing. Uh, research questions. If you have any questions or comments, as you all know, even if you're listening to this a long time from now, please email us at twipo at solvingkidscancer.org. We're happy to read your emails and discuss your questions during a future episode. So Jonathan, (laughs) let's go back to the beginning, back to the UK. Tell us about sort of where you grew up and what got you interested in science or medicine in the beginning.
1: Well, I was born and brought up in Manchester. That's in the north of England, And I guess like many people, we're influenced by personal experiences, family tragedies, and also further on in our careers, we tend to be heavily uh, influenced by uh, our mentors. And I think both of those are true in my case. Um, my sister uh, succumbed to uh, systemic lupus when I was 15 years of age after a long seven-year battle, and it was very clear to me at that time as, as a high school kid who was already interested in biology and, and the idea of medicine that there was a lot that doctors clearly didn't know about, and that was enticing, and that was actually, I would date back, my interest in, t- in immunology. Uh, to those days because I heard about this disease where the body fights against itself, Mm. where the immune system goes wrong. And I had actually contacted um, uh, some people out there, I think, in London from my high school, uh, and I found myself talking to some cancer specialists, and they said, no, 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 this is nothing to do with cancer. Uh, Cancer has got its own set of immunological problems. So I guess at that young age at high school, it, it sort of gotten me very interested into the problems of medicine, and also at the same time an interest in immunology. Did and in fact, in medical school, I uh, did an undergraduate degree in biochemistry, actually in immunochemistry, studying rheumatoid arthritis and, and immunochemistry problems, immune problems in rheumatoid arthritis. I spent uh, some time at the Karolinska Institute in Stockholm looking at c- cells involved in uh, immune systems in the body. And then finally, um, in my last years at medical school, I found that pediatricians were the nicest doctors. <laughs> and my rotations at the Children's Hospital in Birmingham was the best time of all, and I decided, hey, I'm going to be a pediatrician.
0: So immunology of, of cancer is a hot topic right now. But you started getting interested in it a, without disclosing your age. But you know, about what year was was this when you were, were talking t- thinking cer-
1: immunology? Certainly, um, the late
0: sixties. Yeah, so um, you were ahead of your time for sure. After medical school, what? Where did you go from there?
1: Well, I did my pediatric uh, residency trainings in England, and then uh, I'd fallen in love with the United States. At the end of my first year of medical school, I was 19, and I did a summer job at the Rockefeller University uh, in New York, actually, with uh, the late Henry Kunkel, a very prominent uh, immunologist, immunochemist, which, which fed into my interest in immunology. And I came to the United States, as I said, I'd spent some time at the Karolinska Institute at the end of my medical school training in immunology. So I came to the United States in 1976 to do fellowships in pediatric immunology. Uh, with Richard Hong, a uh, very uh, illustrious pediatric immunologist uh, from the from the clone of uh, Bob Good uh, in Minnesota, where they started doing transplants for these immunodeficiency diseases, as Bob coined it. Uh, you know the the lessons of uh, uh, the experiments of nature. And in fact, not only then did I get interested and involved with uh, cellular immunology from that point from that time, but also very much in bone marrow transplantation. At that time, we were already in 1976 amongst the first institutions uh, doing not only thymic transplants for for immune deficiency diseases, but also... um, uh, bone marrow transplants for these diseases. At the end of my two-year fellowships, fellowships were only two years in those days, I, I, was, I continued to be absolutely intrigued by immunology in part because I found it so damn difficult to understand what was going on. And I, I, I just didn't feel that I had the wherewithal to get out into the big bad world, um, uh, into a formal academic position. So I moved it to the next door lab Um, from Richard Hong and that was Nasa Shahidi in hematology and started applying some of the tools and techniques that I would learned in immunology to studying uh, mechanisms of regulation and disordered, disordered regulation in bone marrow failure states, such as aplastic anemia and rare condition known as diamond black anemia. So again, the synthesis of immunology, but this time more with hematology, except I started looking also at dysregulation of hemopoiesis in childhood leukemias. Uh, which moved me back into the oncology arena. So I moved from my pediatric immunology fellowship to a pediatric hematology. So it could be, fellowship.
0: yeah. So it could be said you were a transplanter first, a hematologist second, second, and an oncologist. So, so third. how did I become a <laughs> neurooncologist? So right. I was
1: recruited to Stanford for my first faculty position in 1982, and I was recruited there to be a lab rat to run hematopoietic research in uh, hypoproliferative anemias and leukemias, actually in those days to do the immunophenotyping B-cells with immunofluorescent typing and T-cells, T-cell leukemias with the old sheep erythrocyte, sheep red cell rosetti. I was expected to come 24-7 and do that whenever we had an in-house patient. But the other thing that happened, which was the pivotal event, is I walked through the door and Michael Link, a very famous pediatric oncologist, the first ever uh, president of, of the American Society of Clinical Oncologists to be a pediatrician since then. At that time, he was only a year senior to me. He'd just come out of Harvard, but was basically running the clinical program. And he said to me, Jonathan, you're the junior boy on the block. We like to divide the diseases up amongst us. And I'm afraid you're going to get the disease that nobody else wants. And they gave me brain tumors.
0: Wow. So it's all serendipitous. It's all serendipitous.
1: I was, I long believed in going with the flow and also, Dick Hong, my mentor in Wisconsin, had told me that the the trick in life was to find a niche for yourself, and this was a way of finding a niche that nobody else was into or, else, or wanted to get into, because it was such, at that time, an incredibly depressing arena. Sure, and
0: know that makes sense. There weren't very good treatments, and there still aren't many uh, good treatments. So. But we have made
1: fantastic progress from when I started in 1980 to where we are now. In those days... Very few children, as you indicated, survived brain cancer. And frankly, it was a truly a victory for those that did because their quality of survival um, in those days, very little chemotherapy was used. It was all knee-jerk reaction to give upfront radiation therapy for whether you were low-grade or high-grade. The quality of survival of these children was absolutely abysmal and nobody really was thinking about it, it was paying any attention to it. So I as I said I realized both because it was a bad disease from the perspective of survival as well as from the perspective of quality of survival I said to myself Finley there's a there's 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 a vocation an avocation as well as a career to be made to be made and built here where I could really do a lot for a, a lot of people
0: So that stop in Stanford was very critical but you didn't last long there you moved on pretty quick
1: No I moved back to Madison Wisconsin for per, for more personal reasons frankly Um, Stanford remains a very valuable experience Um, it was a very valuable experience for many reasons but I moved back to Madison and they told me when I was coming back to Madison they didn't want me to come back as a laboratory worker in hemopoiesis they wanted me to come back and build a clinical program and I said oh goody why don't we build a brain tumor program and my mentors there said oh that sounds like a neat idea we don't think we have one of those in Wisconsin and uh, things moved on from there it was 1982 I looked around at in the children's cancer group, the National Cancer Cooperative Group, for children in those days, and I asked some colleagues, "Well, who's doing brain tumors here?" And there was like three people to talk to. Mm. So it was a kind of easy group to get into. They were very welcoming and very supportive. And uh, by literally again, it was because there was nobody else interested. By 1985, I was appointed as the chairman of what was called the Brain Tumor Strategy Group, a very small group of neurosurgeons, radiation therapists, uh, oncologists and neurologists, uh, again, maybe a handful of us at that time, um, setting out to try and do something that had not been done before. There had only been, I think, three childhood brain tumors studies conducted through the group that had just about come to fruition when I came on board. And so it was an open open field. It was very different from the way things are today with the restriction of money. We never thought about it. We never worried about it. We didn't have to. The group was only th- too thrilled to have us build medulloblastoma, high-grade glioma, low-grade glioma, ependymoma, all kinds of studies. It was uh, open field day a sounds, wonderful period of time. Sounds
0: progress. like a golden era almost. Well,
1: it was a golden About era only because what had preceded before was so totally barren and devoid mm-hmm. of any real progress. So there was only one way we could go, and that, that was up. up. <laughs> and, um, you know, we embarked on studies that reaped eventually, not because we had such incredible foresight, but eventually reaped, sort, of, for example, molecular Studies and molecular data that we would never even dreamt of, uh, of collecting. We didn't know anything about. I'm thinking particularly about the uh, the study that um, we did a randomised phase three trial for childhood uh, high grade gliomas, which has resulted in dozens of peer reviewed publications, and a tremendous number of molecular studies that Ian Pollock was the foremost person uh, for developing because we went around and said, can you send us some paraffin blocks? And, oh, we haven't thrown them away. Goodie, we'll get them all. And this was the largest, still remains, the largest uh, cohort of children with high-grade gliomas. And centrally, we thought of doing central pathology review. Do I remember why we thought of that? Probably because a person smarter than me, a bright neuropathologist, told me that we needed to do that. This was absolutely, uh, you know, beginners uh, 101 clinical trials for me. There was no such thing as doing a master's program in clinical research to learn how to do this or anybody did. You know, we we did it by the the, the seat of our pants, so to speak. They can't do that
0: anymore actually.
1: <laughs> no you can't and as as we look back we can clearly see uh, some errors that we made that if we'd been thinking more smartly and intelligently if we'd been better prepared you know with foresight we could have done things even better than uh, a little better than what we did but uh, those were great starting points but the field has changed so dramatically in recent years uh, and it's wonderful to see those changes. Um, obviously, as in other fields of cancer, the era of, uh, of molecular understanding of um, um, molecular classifications and prognostications is upon us. As many smarter people than me have said before me, however, uh, there is a huge chasm between what we've learnt about the biology of cancer and our ability to translate that into therapeutic effective actions. Uh, but we have a lot more uh, tools and and targets at our disposal that we ever had before. In that sense,
0: it's an exciting time. It's
1: very exciting. But again, you know, the wheel has come full circle in other ways. And I guess, again, one is influenced by one's earlier experiences. And for me, uh, the wheel has come back again to discovering or rediscovering the role of the immune system in fighting cancers. Uh, and I think there are tremendously exciting new uh, avenues that are emerging in neurooncology specifically, uh, but in other cancers in general, uh, looking at what we call active immunotherapy, using viruses to specifically uh, target and kill cancer cells, and using what we call adaptive immunotherapy, using strategies that enhance the body's own immune cells to fight their cancers, and at the same time, what we've learnt in recent years is that the body has some immune cells, I guess a little bit like the autoimmune diseases, except backwards. In autoimmune diseases, there are immune cells in the body that fail to recognise certain organs as self and start attacking them. In cancer, there are unfortunately some um, uh, immune cells that think they're doing the body a favour, by recognizing abnormal cancer cells itself and protecting them. But really, they're making it worse. So we've identified those cells and can now begin to address how to target and eliminate those cells while at the same time enhancing the good immune cells and improving their ability to kill. So frankly, again, one is biased by one's own uh, experiences, I'm much more on board with immunotherapeutic strategies to kill cancer. Excuse me. I have to say, and again, my field of research has not been in the development of, of new biological agents. But you know, when we hear about all these targeted therapies and mitosis and and sorry, and um, molecular derangements and deranged pathways, you know, when you think of the number of permutations that exist in most cancers you know, it becomes a horrendous task to pick one or even a limited number of drugs that will target most of our cancers. And again, I'm not saying any, anything that others haven't stated. I've heard uh, very well-respected uh, clinician scientists say that Gleevec in some ways, Imatinib, uh, was, a, was a bonus and, and, and,
0: uh, blessing and a, curse. a blessing
1: and a curse yeah. to cancer therapy because many people, especially Big Pharma, thought all they need to do is spend extreme ex million dollars and they can develop a drug that targets a specific molecular derangement in the cancer and you've cured the cancer but as we know there are indeed very few cancers uh, in which there are just one or even a limited number of targets uh, and in fact in childhood cancers there are sometimes bereft of mutations uh, or pathways that we can actually target I think sometimes I, I tell students that I feel like we're sitting in a sand pit like kids playing with sand in a sand pit and we pick up a grain of sand and say oh that looks like a pretty good target to go for and of course we're sitting amidst millions and millions of grains of sand. Daunting. It's very daunting. It is not as easy as the present fervor and enthusiasm makes us believe. And we have to be considering, uh, again, I've mentioned immunotherapeutic strategies, which I think are more than a second class consideration. Uh, But we have to be considering all different avenues. And frankly, whilst many of my colleagues have often said that the era of classic chemotherapy, uh, the Big Bang bombastic, Bash you over the head, kind of chemotherapy for which I guess I, as a, as a proponent of uh, marrow ablative chemotherapy and blood cell rescue, am considered uh, somewhat of.
0: um, You're a champion of that. A champion, or whatever.
1: Um, I think that era is not going to disappear quite as quickly as we might like. I think that many of the new biologics will assist, particularly in the mopping up of minimal residual disease after the big bang therapy. Uh, But the number of tumors uh, like um, uh, chronic myeloid leukemia or Philadelphia chromosome leukemia or the GIST, these rare GIST tumors, uh, that respond dramatically and permanently to single-targeted drugs is going to be very, very few.
0: So that's a nice segue to tell us more about your Head Start protocols. You didn't last in Madison that long either. You went on to some other institutions. When was it that you sort of got the impetus to, to go after the Head Start protocols and that approach. Well,
1: moving from one institution to another is a tremendous growing experience that I've pretty much loved and enjoyed and I might add benefits significantly from wherever I've been. I went back to Madison for five years, had a wonderful experience there and was then recruited to the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, which is absolutely superlative institution. Uh, I was only there for two years, mainly because I was offered an opportunity that certainly I would consider was the foremost opportunity of, of, of my career, and that was uh, Richard O'Reilly's invitation to come and join him at Memorial Sloan Kettering because he, as a founding father of a transplantation, particularly transplantation in uh, childhood leukemias, uh, recognized the potential for what I was interested in at that time at a very early stage of that interest, Um, looking at um, using high-dose chemotherapy with blood cell rescue, or marrow in those days, as a tool against uh, aggressive childhood brain tumors. Frankly, my time at Memorial was wonderful, was very experiential, but it was also very difficult in many ways because, frankly, there were a lot of people both in New York and way beyond uh, who didn't really believe in what we were trying to do. And to be very honest, I think uh, for some years there, I think there were only two people. That believed in what I was doing, me and Richard O'Reilly. <laughs> uh, but with Richard's support uh, and commitment, we were able to establish a number of trials, first of all, for recurrent children with recurrent brain tumors that then went through, actually, from our own institution into the children's cancer group, um, studies for newly diagnosed children um, with glioblastoma, the most malignant of gliomas of childhood, which also moved into the children's cancer group. And then, of course, the Head Start study, what we began to realize quite early was if these strategies could rescue a small proportion, certainly not the majority, but a small proportion of children whose tumors had failed both conventional chemotherapy and radiation and surgery up front, but still a small proportion of them could be cured with high-dose chemotherapy and blood cell rescue, how much more so could we make mileage if we started incorporating that strategy right up front for newly diagnosed children? And particularly thinking about children, the youngest age children, for whom we were already recognizing in the mid to late 80s that we had at all costs to avoid radiation, because the eff- the effects of irradiation on the developing child in the first four, five, six years of life are uh, is very substantial, very profound, uh, as well as irreversible, and as we in fact now know, progressive, not a stagnant damaging effect. So it seemed to me. Uh, First of all, most of these malignant tumors in young children were highly rapid and aggressive, so the battle was lost or won in the first matter of six months. We had data already from the cooperative groups in this country and abroad that children, infants with medulloblastoma and other embryonal tumors, uh, most of them were dead inside a year. The disease came back in six months to a year. So I recognized that we had to treat them heavy and fast. So we developed a strategy of of intensive induction therapy for a short period of time, just four to five months, and then finish it off rather than radiation, but with a single cycle of high-dose marrow-destructive chemotherapy with initially in those days bone marrow rescue, using the child's own bone marrow. Uh, More obviously in recent decades, we've moved from using the bone marrow to using more simply obtained peripheral blood stem cells. And uh, it's been a, a growing experience for not only the initial institutions that participated, but everybody everywhere. Uh, this is something that has spread worldwide now. Um, I'm going to be presenting at uh, the International Society of Pediatric Oncology, Cape Town, uh, this October, the joint experience with Head Start with Kuala Lumpur in Malaysia that have been doing it for 15 years now. and um, be presenting what are Outcome data not substantially different from what we can achieve across the board in the United States. So it was about
0: the mid-80s then that you started the first Head Start? The first um, Head Start
1: really started for newly diagnosed children in 1990.
0: 1990. So Head
1: Start 1 was 1990 to 97, Head Start 2, 97 to 2003, Head Start 3... I keep moving every time I start Head Start. <laughs> Head Start 1 was at Memorial, based at Memorial, Head Start 2 at NYU, Head Start 3 at Children's Hospital Los Angeles, and here we are in 2015, and Head Start 4 is about to open, uh, based here at Nationwide Children's Hospital, with some 48 or more institutions from the United States, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, United Kingdom, Switzerland, Belgi- uh,
0: Brazil. Probably. And what's the Head Start 4 objectives?
1: Well, Head Start 4 is a quantum leap above uh, in terms of advancement, if you like, from the previous studies. Obviously, the fundamental objectives continue to be an improvement in the survival as well as the quality of that survival for children uh, with these malignant and bridal tumours. And predominantly the focus is medulloblastoma and these other so-called PMETs or primitive neuroectodermal tumours. The way we're moving about that is incorporating, for the first time in this or any other study for young children, Um, molecular risk profiling so every child we're going to get tumor centrally reviewed not only for regular pathology but also molecularly profiled um, into high risk or low risk uh, groupings uh, and then their therapy will be streamlined according to whether they meet molecular high-risk or molecular low-risk criteria. So that is an absolute first. The second thing we're going to be doing is specifically for the high-risk patients, we're going to be looking at a randomized study. Again, we've never done this in Head Start before, to have a randomized study of the single-cycle transplant therapy, which we've been doing for 20-odd years now, randomized against the standard that it has come out and from the Children's Cancer Group, which I was involved in developing with colleagues within the Children's Cancer Group, which I'm pleased to say is finally published this year, that is the CCG99703, which piloted in a phase one setting the use of tandem transplants. Uh, our hypothesis so is... So two
0: transplants. Three, actually. The other three.
1: three. But each one is slightly less intensive than doing the one biggie, but what happens is our hypothesis is that for the poorest risk children, the outcome will be improved using the tandems because the dose intensification is double that of the single transplant, but but spread over uh, three three cycles. Uh, So that's going to be our strategy for if you like, more patient-tailored, more individualized therapy based on clinical and molecular risk profiling. And also, induction will be will be shortened for those that more speedily achieve a complete response. So if you have a complete response by three cycles, you don't need the traditional five cycles that we've used previously. You'll go straight into transplant at that point because we have shown in Head Start 3 that achievement of a complete response is predictive of a more of an improved outcome, irrespective of other prognostic factors.
0: Yeah. So really, it's using the 25 years' experience of the Head Start studies to launch this new one.
1: Absolutely, so, but taking it a level that we've never been able to do before. One of the humbling things is that in Head Start one, two, and three, although we never did such biology studies, we ran that on a shoestring. Uh, institutions participated because they believed in it. Uh, we didn't have any funding to be able to support institutional participation. All those 40-odd institutions participated because they believed in the strategy of trying to improve the curate and the quality of survival of these children with an irradiation-avoiding strategy. And that, for me, is the most humbling thing, that show of trust over so many years. Now I'm pleased to say that we, uh, through the support from Nationwide Children's Hospital, were able actually to give the support at the institutional level for patient enrollment, which institutions quite rightly deserve because nobody can do these kind of studies anymore, either collecting and collating and submitting the clinical data, certainly not obtaining all the pathologic materials and radiologic so materials. these kinds of studies review. are very expensive, very expensive, a
0: lot and of work, a lot of money. Yeah, that's true. So that's exciting to have that launching soon. Um, there's also uh, an initiative you've gotten involved with, with sort of a um, spin-off name called Head Smart. You want to yes. tell us about that? Head Smart. You know, there's
1: nothing nothing new under the sun, and I'm honoured and privileged to have been able to have gotten a lot of my insights from my elders and betters, and, my, and many of my peers who are, who are also elders and betters, or even younger and betters. David Walker uh, is a leading pediatric neurologist in Britain in Nottingham, and um, he has spearheaded uh, a program in England called the Head Smart program. They had recognized and they published this in Lancet Oncology uh, almost eight years ago there was a significant uh, delay in diagnosis of children with brain tumors uh, throughout the United Kingdom, and that this seemed to translate into increasing at least morbidity of outcomes. So he initiated a program, which is called Head Smart, to try and sensitize both the community of general practitioners and consultant pediatricians and child neurologists, as well as families, into the the warning signs of brain tumors in childhood. And very specifically, they were very aware that they didn't want to have a sudden epidemic of everybody getting MRI scans left, right and center for for a headache every day. They wanted this to be so that practitioners out there in the trenches would be equally comfortable knowing when not to worry about the diagnosis of a brain tumor and not to worry about getting a a scan as to when they do need to worry. And they've come out with an app and with brochures and and they they were on BBC uh, TV and on the radio and in Parliament and everything. And they're actually beginning to generate data that show already in a matter of a few years that they have Uh, shorten the interval from symptom onset to referral to physicians and then ultimately to diagnosis. This is not a problem unique to the United Kingdom. There are data from this country as well, from many states, uh, from multi-center studies that have been done, and the same is certainly true in Ohio, for example. Uh, We're going to assess as a starting point the extent of that delay and then seek to support translating the head smart experience into an effort here um, in Ohio at least to start with great I think that'll be very
0: exciting so besides uh, early diagnosis and um, novel immunotherapies and more uh, or better or smarter use of current therapies and high doses we've talked about what do you think the challenges are over the next 10 to 20 years in Pediatric neuro-oncology.
1: We still have uh, problems, even as we reduce radiation therapy. We still, for example, when we're talking about these common malignant tumors that occur in the posterior fossa in the cerebellum, we still have the problem of something called the posterior fossa syndrome which initially was an acute oddity that became a more chronic oddity that was transient and now we realize can be not only chronic but very severe and profound, leaving significant cognitive deficits on these children. We're honing in on what are the causes of this These seem to be related to surgical approaches and maneuvers during the very necessary attempts to perform radical surgeries. Can the surgeons learn to uh, avoid those kind of things? Should we be looking as we move Forward, as some have suggested, more in Europe than in this country, of using pre surgical chemotherapy after just simple biopsies and doing second surgery when it's safer. To go and debunk the residual tumors in those settings. I think this is going to be a, a hot topic because as we reduce our radiation therapy for children for medulloblastoma and argue about whether eighteen hundred is that much better than twenty-three forty centigrade to the neuroaxis, I think the implications of posterior fossa syndrome are more profound than whether you talk about eighteen or twenty-three forty centigrade even though we've, we've embarked on massive randomized studies to answer those questions. So I think, again, the issue of quality of survival is going to continue to be a major focus for, for, for all of us in the field of neuro-oncology. The increasing role of genetics, of, um, uh, of the understanding of molecular genetics, uh, not simply for diagnosis or even for therapeutic targeting, but for predisposition is increasingly growing as we, you know, once upon a time we would have said to our families, oh, you know, only about 5% of childhood cancer, and 5% of brain cancer is really genetically is inherited. We've begun to realize that genetics isn't quite as simple as, uh, you know, what you get from your mum or dad directly in terms of Mendelian genetics. Uh, but there are a variety of uh, polymorphisms, for example, you know, why are Asians more prepared? Prone to get it 15 times more common, commonly yet uh, central nervous system germ cell tumors. Well, we're beginning to understand that. There are a whole variety of these. And it opens up the box, the Pandora's box, of um, whole genome and other molecular uh, uh, surveying, you know, the risks and the benefits of that. Again, the biology is far ahead of our understanding of what these things mean, let alone what we do about them, either to prevent, let alone treat. So you know, going out and getting your whole genome sequence for under a grand, as we'll soon be able to do, uh, sounds like fun and interesting, and but we're not going to know what to do with most of that stuff. And I think these are going to be issues for all of cancer, not certainly not just brain cancer, but certainly it's a significant problem because we've long recognized that a number of our brain tumors are Seen in the setting of well recognized Mendelian inherited uh, um, genetic predisposition disorders.
0: So, if you were to talk to a hematology oncology fellow, would you, you know? You started. We started this podcast by talking about how you got into brain cancers because it was what no one else wanted to do. What would you advise a, a current fellow? Should they go into neuro-oncology? Well, of course, I'm a terrible evangelist when
1: it comes to that. You know, I'm a great believer in the philosophy of St. Ignatius Loyola, uh, the founder of the Jesuits, who said, give me a child under 10 years of age and I'll make him a lifelong devotee. Uh, give me a pre-med student or a student or a resident (laughs) and I'll make a neuro-oncologist of them Uh, you know this is an exciting era but it's a less scary era than it was when I went into it when really we were in the dark ages back there you had to really be uh, of my Pollyanna mentality you know uh, cockeyed optimistic mentality to go into college which in you had. Days, which I had <laughs> uh, which I still have um, uh, it's much it's very exciting there's so many as I've mentioned so many different therapeutic potentials and avenues that merit pursuing for the physician scientist as well as clinical avenues uh, for the cl- clinical investigator I would say when you ask where I want to see things go for the future. And this applies not simply to neuro-oncology, but to cancer in general in the pediatric setting. You know, we like to brag in in pediatric cancer that we're in the business of curing in the year 2015 80 to 85% of children that walk through the door with cancer. That's great. It's true for North America. It's true for Western Europe. But that is only therefore true for 15% of the children of the world. And I truly believe that we have an ethical and moral st- uh, responsibility as we move forward to whether it's through twinning programs or whatever educational programs to be assisting in the training and education of. Uh, the next generations of leaders in developing countries throughout the world. And I'm very proud of the fact that Nationwide Children's Hospital has given me the fairly unique opportunity to establish a global international program for pediatric neuro-oncology here. We have our first faculty in that regard. We're doing teleconferencing every single week uh, with centers, throughout Central and South America in Spanish and in English where they present cases to us, neurosurgeons, uh, radiologists, oncologists, and getting immediate real-time feedback. We're reviewing slides. We're reviewing imaging studies. Uh, We're already planning to bring some people from Colombia, from Mexico, out to come from Brazil to come and spend short-term
0: periods of training for us.
1: I think this is something that all institutions should be looking towards establishing. And growing.
0: Yeah, that's a really good point that um, we live in a unique country and the needs of the world really need to be better addressed.
1: And I have to say that going out and spending a week or two weeks visiting some of the programs in Central and South America you have a much healthier and uh, uh, an optimistic perspective when you return to your own country and your own institution and uh, tend tend to be a, a bit less complaining about some <laughs> of the things you don't
0: have. Well, thank you for sitting down with me and, and chatting about at we'll have to get you on some other episodes. Uh, it's really exciting to hear all the work that you've been doing. So, again, to the listeners, please send us your emails. If you have a question about our podcast today and I can forward it on to Dr. Finley, just send a note to twipo at solvingkidscancer.org. You can also follow us on Twitter at Twipo Podcast and sign up for automatic notification when we post new episodes. Thanks for the team at Solving Kids Cancer, a nonprofit charity dedicated to improving survival through creating novel treatment options for children. The team includes Donald Ludwinski, our executive producer, Jenny Song, director of communications, and Scott Kennedy and John London, who are founding co-directors of Solving Kids Cancer. Remember, the more we learn, communicate, share ideas, and work together, the faster we'll reach the day when all childhood cancer is preventable or curable. As always, keep up the fight, and thanks for listening to This Week in Pediatric Oncology.